Welcome to Partnering Leadership, conversations with leading influencers in the greater Washington, D.C. region and global thought leaders, helping you align better with your purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to the Partnering Leadership Podcast. I am really excited this week to be welcoming Michelle McQuaid. She's a best-selling author, workplace well-being teacher, and a playful change activator. Michelle also has a brilliant podcast of her own, Making Positive Psychology Work. In this conversation, we talk about how leaders can use positive psychology to become better leaders themselves and how they can lead more effectively. Thank you for your comments. Feel free to keep those coming, mahan at mahantavikoli.com. On the partneringleadership.com website, there's a microphone icon. You can leave me a voice message there. And for those of you that listen to the show on the Apple Podcast app, feel free to leave a rating and review on the Apple Podcast app. For now, here's my conversation with Michelle McQuaid. Michelle McQuaid, welcome to the Partnering Leadership Podcast. It is so wonderful to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I was mentioning to you before, I'm a big fanboy. I love your Making Positive Psychology Work podcast. I think it's one of the bingeable podcasts out there. I have binged on it, listening all the way past to your very first episode. So it's fabulous. Now, in a nod to your podcast, what is something that our audience might not know about you besides the fact that I'm jealous you had a sheep as a pet growing up? Well, they might not know that. Unfortunately, one of the neighbours did not love the sheep as much as we did, or you might like the idea of, because we're in a suburban backyard. And unfortunately, they shot the sheep. I was only about like (laughs) nine years old when we had a sheep and my younger sister was about seven. And apparently my mother came out one morning to find the sheep kind of dead in the backyard with the bullet hole through it and had to kind of quickly get rid of the sheep so that we didn't understand what had quite happened. So the sheep met a sad end, but it was a resilience lesson later down the track when we understood that not everybody enjoyed the same things that we did. So that is something I've never shared publicly before. So there's something you don't know. (laughs) That is fabulous. I'm glad to find that out. Having listened to almost all of your episodes, I knew a lot about you, but not this one. So Michelle, what in your upbringing do you think contributed most to you becoming the kind of person you have become? Yeah, well, this is a big question and I'm mindful of time because we could be here for days just on this one. But for me, I experienced lots of change early on in life. My parents had a fairly tumultuous early start and they had one of the first no-fault divorces in Australia by the time I was four, which was pretty strange at that time. It wasn't until I was about year seven other kids started to experience what it might be to have parents that were separating And as a result of that, my mother, who was a high school teacher, then spent a lot of time trying to outrun her ghosts. And so at least every 12 months from the ages of three to about 14, we moved every year. So by the time I was in year seven, I'd been to seven different schools, which is a lot. I'd lived in three different states, about 10 different houses, and a lot of time being the new kid stood at the front of the class. And then being the kid that was going to leave and people didn't want to be friends with you anymore. So I am naturally introverted, but all of that upheaval, number one, created a fair amount of social anxiety, as you might imagine. And number two, made me really dread change. 
And so growing up, I was determined, you know, as soon as I was old enough to take charge of my own life, which was about 16, I left home when I was 16 years old, so I could make my own choices. I was going to lock down that change stuff and change would not happen anymore. I'd have stability. And of course, only to realize that change is constant (laughs) and that perhaps rather than trying to lock it down, what I needed was to learn some better skills to be able to navigate the constant experience of change where it wasn't always quite so white knuckled for me. That is fabulous. And what you ended up doing with that is eventually you ended up pursuing studying positive psychology. What got you to study it? Well, I do believe we study most what we need to know in life and then try to teach it to others, which has definitely been my journey. And so obviously, personally, I'd had a lot of upheaval, but professionally around the time that I came across the field of positive psychology back about 2006, I was working for PricewaterhouseCoopers, the big accounting and auditing firm. I was in New York with them in a global brand role. And as a services business, right, they're auditors and accountants and advisors primarily, you're really selling your people. You know, it's not so much the product on the shelf and how you package it, but how do your people show up every day? What are their values? What are their behaviors? How do they interact with you as they're going about that work for you? I come to a point personally where I'd gotten a bit more used to change. I realized I couldn't lock it down. It was still mostly a white knuckle experience. I just resisted it a little less. And then professionally, I started doing this work with PricewaterhouseCoopers to try and help our people do more of what they did best every day, because we figured that was what people were showing up and paying us for. And if they could do that, they might buy more of it from us in the future. And really, that came down to helping people understand their values, understand their beliefs, understand how to consistently turn that into helpful actions. And at the time in the firm, and again, PricewaterhouseCoopers has one of the best change capabilities of any organization in the world. We sell that. We sold it at the time to clients everywhere. So we had a wealth of knowledge and tools and people who understood change, but it was very grounded at that time in what was popular around that moment, which was the academic research of people like John Cotter at Harvard University, which really was still looking at complex change through a very simple lens, create a burning platform, get a coalition of the willing, put down a plan, get quick wins, savor those things. And we were doing this in my role in that global setting. I would move in and out of leadership teams all over the world, different cultures, different challenges, different opportunities. And what I saw over and over again was that it helped get compliance. We we got movement to change. We got compliance. But the moment leadership attention went somewhere else, what most often happened was people drifted back to what they were doing before. And so professionally, I started to get curious about, well, how did you create commitment to these behavior change? And really, there wasn't a lot there around that time, except for the fact that one night I was watching the John Stewart show and there was a professor on there from Harvard, a different professor called Tel Ben-Shahar, who was talking about why his course had become the most popular on campus. And that course was positive psychology. It was the first time in the history of Harvard, anything was more popular than accounting and economics. And it was this science of behavior change, the science of bringing out the best in people, the science of human thriving. And it really opened up this whole new field for me to go and dig into the research. I went and did my master's. I've done my PhD now in change and how we make that work so that we get commitment more reliably rather than just settling for compliance. So there was a professional and personal kind of intertwining of where I definitely needed it and it helped me in my own life. But professionally, I was really looking for answers 
businesses that at that time, back 2006, I think as we just started to begin getting more appreciation for complex challenges in workplaces rather than simple technical challenges. And at that stage, the tools and knowledge to deal with that were still pretty limited and buried in many places. And that's very astute of you because a lot of change before then was being looked at from a systemic perspective with a lot of professors and people that had a systems orientation, structural orientation to the organization and change processes. You ended up taking more a people-centered orientation. And we all know as leaders, typically change initiatives don't fail because of structures and systems, but fail because of the people. Absolutely. It's not the plan that's generally wrong. And I think that was watching these plans try to be executed all over the world. And, you know, we've had these beautifully linear plans with clear milestones and goals and measures around them. And then, of course, it was never linear and step by step. It was a leap forward and a step to the side and a slide backwards. And if you were lucky enough, it was much more messy and dynamic. And at that stage, you're right, even in the systems, we still tended to teach, to treat change as though it's some kind of process that we could manage and control. Think about the whole field of change management, out of which so much of that work was coming at the time. And now, and I think this year has taught all of us what perhaps was harder to see is just change actually can't be managed, (laughs) probably shouldn't be managed. We're probably doing something wrong. Definitely not going to help us be anti-fragile if we're trying to manage change just to a plan. But what is the alternative? Because a little bit like my childhood experience, feeling white knuckled through change all the time is scary. It's emotionally exhausting. It's hard for us to show up and be our best people when we're feeling really scared every day. And with that, you have actually worked with, studied, and learned the works of some of the best that are out there. I love Talbin Shahar, your interviews with him, Martin Seligman. Part of the reason I love your podcast is that you have a chance to have conversations with some of the leaders in the field as you are a leader in this field. Now, there is a misunderstanding. Sometimes people don't understand positive psychology and that they see it almost as self-help hype. What is positive psychology? Positive psychology has been around for decades in psychology as a field as the essence of an idea, right? You can go right back to Maslow and others and you'll find elements of it. And what they were trying to figure out is how do humans flourish? How do they thrive at their best? Even when times are challenging as well as when times are a little easier. Positive psychology was the term given to the field back around in the 1990s by Professor Martin Seligman, who, as you mentioned, I was fortunate enough to go and do my master's study with. Marty these days would say probably wishes he could rename the field because the positive part sometimes can be misleading. They were all going to be positive all the time. And I think that's one of the differences between self-help that self-help seems often to suggest that there's a right answer. And if we just read the books and we take the courses, then we can help ourselves out of whatever challenges that we're in. Whereas I think increasingly, particularly as the field of research around positive psychology has matured over the last 30 years, there's absolutely a recognition that that's not always possible, right? Sometimes those things are within us to be able to impact. Sometimes they're in the context and the systems around us. And so the last thing we want to do is create unnecessary pressure or shame or blame on people. And I think Black Lives Matters and so many of the conversations we've had this year are such important examples of that. I think the other really big difference that Marty was very passionate about as a lifelong psychologist and scientist is that positive psychology really looks for the evidence base in any practice. 
Now, there can definitely be overlap between some of the ideas we see in self-help and the ideas that we see in positive psychology, but if there's not a journal article somewhere, at least one supporting an idea, we wouldn't share it in positive psychology. And ideally, we're looking for multiple journal articles where some an idea has been replicated over time in different groups. But we're also holding that with a reasonable health caution that the very best science on human behavior only ever tells us what works for some of the people some of the time. And so whereas self-help, I think, again, in the desire to give us certainty, which, of course, our brains love, (laughs) wants to make things a lot more simplistic and less nuanced, positive psychology tries to recognize that no science is ever proven because the point of good science is to keep disproving what you already knew and find new things, but also that when it comes to human behavior, very few things are really that certain and context matters and what's right for you won't necessarily be right for me. And so the idea of positive psychology is to accelerate our understanding of human flourishing, how we thrive, how we struggle, how we build resilience, how we further connection with each other, but also to recognize that we need permission to experiment and pull it apart to figure out what is best for each of us and that we need to be our own experiments to find the answers that are right for us. And what you do and what everyone in the field has done, rather than sticking to anecdotal examples that simplify things, they're science-based and much more complex answers as leaders look to guide themselves, lead themselves, and lead their organizations. So with your understanding of positive psychology, what would you say are the most critical elements for leaders as they look to lead themselves most effectively? I think number one, now as leaders, we are highly contagious. (laughs) So the most contagious thing in your organization when it comes to well-being, engagement, performance, the ability to navigate change is you. So it's very much a case for us as leaders of fitting our own oxygen masks first, as we used to hear all the time on the planes. And so this isn't something you can outsource or delegate or if you are not well and caring for yourself, then chances are that is flowing through to your people. So I think that's number one. I think number two, to your point earlier, is that as people, we are not like machines. You don't just get up in the morning, press the button, and we run at a steady pace all day until we switch the button off and hopefully get some sleep at night. We're living systems and so we pulse throughout our day. We ebb and we flow as we move into different contexts. And so our energy as leaders is one of the most precious and unfortunately often limited (laughs) elements that we bring to our roles. So how do we care for our energy impacts the way that we will show up neurologically. It impacts the way we show up psychologically. It impacts the way we show up physically. It impacts the way we show up socially. And all of that has a flow-on effect to engagement, to performance, to satisfaction. And so I think often in the past, we'd like to think as leadership as this very rational, controllable, (laughs) manageable, right? How many of us have managers in our titles or have at some point? And yet the reality is it's much more messy and magical is the good news than what any of us might expect. And so the sooner we come to terms with that and stop hanging on to the control of illusion and that this is somehow something we can manage and be rational around and instead embrace like any other complex system, the dynamics that come with that and put that to work for ourselves and others, the better we are as leaders and also the more successful we are as a result. 
And one of the aspects of that, Michelle, that I've seen and heard of you doing outstandingly well is the authenticity that needs to go along with that. So can you share with the audience how you as a leader try to be authentic with your team and your authentic self? I think once you accept that all living systems are messy and magical, right? We, we have that capacity to nail it some days and fail miserably others. And so a big piece for me that made it possible to be more authentic as a leader was just making peace that I am perfectly imperfect, just like every other human being on this planet. And nature wired us to be perfectly imperfect so that we can learn and grow and adapt and evolve as our circumstances around us change. So a big piece for me in really stepping into being more authentic as a leader was letting go of the pretense that I had it all figured out, letting go of the pressure that I needed to be perfect and making it work all the time, and instead stepping in to that mess and the magic of what I am, having the compassion that other people will also be messy and magical as well, and just taking some of that pressure off. A big piece for me that was instrumental in that is the research of Professor Carol Dweck at Stanford University who looks at whether we lean more towards having what she describes as a fixed mindset, kind of believe we come into the world with a certain amount of talent and intelligence and ability. We're good at sport or we're clumsy, we're musical, we're tone deaf, we're smart or we're stupid. And that's kind of our lot in life. And if everything we're judging ourselves and others on is that sense of fixed ability, then we need to be perfect because if we're not or we're letting other people see that we're not, then what does that say about us? And particularly if we've got that belief that I might not get much better than this. Once you see behind the curtain, you know, like, where's that going to leave me? And so it's really hard to be authentic when we're in that fixed mindset. The alternative Carol's research find is what she describes as this growth mindset where, yeah, I came into the world with a certain amount of talent and ability and intelligence, but with learning and practice, I can always get better. And of course, neurologically, over the last 15 years, we've learned that's the case. We used to think late 20s, your brain stopped developing, that's your lot in life. But we know that's not true anymore. We keep learning until our last day on this earth. And so rather than holding the outcomes too tightly as the sense of my own self-worth and what I'm capable of, instead in this growth mindset, it makes that space for us to be perfectly imperfect, to know situation by situation, the best I can do, show up, give it my best shot, be open to whatever learning unfolds, good, bad, anything in between, even when it's uncomfortable and I don't like it. And knowing that I can take from that learning an ability to show up even better next time. Now, it doesn't mean we don't still want good outcomes. Don't get me wrong. I love it when I nail a good outcome. And as a business leader, that's often definitely my goal. But I know most of the outcomes we've been working towards, even this year, Many of us will struggle by the end of the year to remember what we tried so hard to do, but what we hold on to and what we get to capitalize on over and over again is the learning that came from those efforts. And it's that learning that will lead to our next success more so than the outcomes themselves. So that gave me a whole lot of permission as a leader to just be human, to be authentic, to let my people behind the curtain and know there's mess and magic there, but hey, what you can count on me to do is I will show up each day. I will give it my best. I will own when it's not working. I will ask for help. I will offer help to others. And as a result of that, we'll probably create some pretty magical things together. 
That is fabulous, Michelle. Now, a lot of the leaders that I interact with at least perceive themselves as having a growth mindset. The biggest challenge they see is how do I get my team and organization to embrace a growth mindset? What are your thoughts about getting the team and the organization to embrace a growth mindset if you do actually have it as a leader? So one of the things we always say when we teach growth mindsets in workplaces, if you're sitting there listening to that list of growth mindset behaviors and going, Michelle, I'm all good. I've got this all figured out. Then respectfully, we're going to suggest that's not very growth mindset, right? (laughs) So one of the sure signs that you're probably not yet quite as growth mindset as you want to be is thinking you've got growth mindset all covered, right? So we'll just get that one out of the way, number one. And it kind of (laughs) leads to the answer to your question, which big first piece on this is modeling as leaders ourselves. And knowing that we're all works in progress. I love Carol Dweck's suggestion is so often as we're talking about the things that we've not yet mastered is just adding that question yet. Yeah, I'm not pure growth mindset yet. I'm a work in progress. I might get there one day. I doubt it. In some ways, I hope I never do because it would mean that I've learned everything there was to learn on this. And I don't know, I like the learning. Anyway, to the point on teams, one is model. The second one is that growth mindsets and psychological safety inextricably entwined with each other. And I was fortunate enough to interview Carol on the podcast to talk to her about this, particularly the work organizations like Microsoft have been doing with their leaders to help build both growth mindsets and psychological safety. But also, of course, one of the leading researchers in the world on psychological safety is Professor Amy Edmondson at Harvard. And I've had that privilege to also interview Amy and say, well, Amy, where do growth mindsets fit to your work? And there's complete agreement here that that one doesn't happen without the other right? It's hard to be perfectly imperfect and comfortable with my mess and magic if I'm in a team environment where when I make a mistake, I'm going to be blamed and shamed for that. When I ask a question that others might think are dumb, I'm going to be ridiculed for that. When something's not quite working in what I'm doing, instead of somebody talking to me about it, they're going to bitch and moan in the corridors about it. All of those behaviors, we all do them some of the time because neurologically, our brain is wired to protect us from any source of threat. So when we see ourselves as that source of threat, that's when the self-criticism comes out instead of the self-compassion of being that wise and kind friend. And when we see others as a source of threat, that's where our judgment tends to come out and be pretty brutal of other people at times. If we sit though towards growth mindsets and psychological safety, when things aren't quite going to plan, perhaps we're failing miserably, we're facing into setbacks, we're letting people down, it just didn't go the way that we wanted, we need to reach for curiosity rather than judgment. So when we can feel our brain, I know for myself, when I'm in judgment mode, and I still do it, our brain does this for very healthy reasons, but a bit like an overprotective parent, our brain doesn't always know when to stop with the judgment because it's actually getting in the way of some important learning and growth for us. So when I'm in judgment mode, like I'm like, that person should have, or I'm in inner critic mode with myself judging, oh, you idiot, you loser, what were you thinking? I know that's my time to reach for my curiosity. And my curiosity then is, okay, I'm perfectly imperfect. I'm learning just like everybody else, or that person's learning just like I am. How can I help here? What am I missing? What do we need to know? In our team, we have what we call the learning loop. 
And it came from work that I'd done with Carol. And so we recognize whenever we're struggling, there are three questions that are really important to ask. And the first is, what's working well? Because even in our worst moments of struggle, there'll be something working. And if we can find that, it helps us hang on to a bit of self-belief, self-efficacy, some confidence that we'll find our way through. Then the second question is, and where are we struggling? Like what's not working here? Let's make some space to own that. And even in our best moments, we do this whether we're succeeding or failing in any moment, even in our best moments, there's always room for learning and growth. And then most importantly, what are we learning? Because we know it's the learning that we get to hold on to. And then once we've kind of done that assessment, we'll ask ourselves, and how do we adjust now? How do we go forward? Those three simple questions have been a really powerful way to build both growth mindsets and psychological safety in our team. And we'll say to each other, hey, let's just take a moment here and run a learning loop. Or hey, can you help me run a learning loop and give me some feedback on what you can see here? And so when there's no shame or blame, when there's less judgment going on and there's more curiosity and generosity for what it is to be perfectly imperfect, then what you start to see is that sitting in that growth mindset space for knowing we're safe with each other, for innovation and creativity and better outcomes all start to unfold fairly naturally around you and surprisingly quickly as well. And that's fabulously put, Michelle. I love the way you describe growth mindset, which I'm a big fan of Satya Nadella and the transformation of Microsoft, which was seen as almost dead by 2014 on its way down. Obviously, it's done a lot of things well, but the organizational culture and truly embracing a growth mindset, starting with himself, has been part of the transformation of that organization. Now, you also mentioned psychological safety, which is not fully understood. Sometimes people say, well, no, we are working in a real business that needs to produce real results. I pay people or compensate them to be adults. They need to move on with feedback or whatever else, whatever happens. What is psychological safety and how can leaders make sure that their organization is more of a psychologically safe environment? Yeah, I remember when I interviewed Amy Edmondson, she gave me this really beautiful definition to understand psychological safety simply. And she said, psychological safety is simply our ability to not tie ourselves into interpersonal knots. (laughs) And I think so much of our energy every day, right? If you think about as a leader, where do I leak most of my energy? I'm going to take a safe bet that the majority of that is in relationships with other people because they're getting tied into interpersonal knots with each other. And so often I think there is this concern that psychological safety, self-compassion is another one of these ideas, it's soft. It's like with grown-ass adults, let's get on with it, let's take the hard roles. Honestly, I think there's nothing tougher than having to be self-compassionate or having to extend psychological safety for somebody else because it means psychological safety is not biting our tongue when somebody's saying or doing something, you know, it's annoying us, it's not working for us, it's destroying trust with us or we can see it having that impact on others. It's not getting stuck on the hump of politeness because we're not willing to have an awkward conversation that might be clumsy with somebody. It's not creating that common enemy intimacy that kind of selves our frustrations with other people because we're bitching and moaning to somebody else about it. But in the meantime, it's completely destroying trust, not just with the person we're bitching and moaning about, but the person we're bitching and moaning to because now they're wondering what we're going to say the next time they annoy us about something else. It's not micromanaging and thinking, hey, it's just quicker to do it myself. Instead, stepping in to be the coach that helps somebody learn and grow in the ways that they need. So in 
my experience, psychological safety is anything but soft. Amy Edmondson herself points out psychological safety is not about being nice and glossing things over with each other. It's about having what is often phrased as a hard or a tough conversation. But I think in our world, we think of it a little differently from a hard or tough conversation. Doesn't mean it won't be hard or tough to do it or be part of it, but we like to think of it as a curious and generous conversation. Because there's a reason many of us don't want to have hard and tough conversations, and that's because they're hard and tough. But if we think about, hey, this person like me is just perfectly imperfect, and I can see they're struggling there, and I know if it was me, I wouldn't want somebody to just leave me there, perhaps unaware or unaided. And so here, the curious and the generous thing to do is just say, hey, you going okay over there? Or hey, maybe that's not quite landing the way that you think it is. Or hey, that didn't sit awesome with me. Can we have a conversation about that, even if it's a bit uncomfortable for us. So psychological safety in its essence is making sure we don't get stuck in those interpersonal knots with each other, but instead keep that flow of communication and energy and trust between us nice and strong and clear. And it is one of those things that for various reasons has become more important, but harder in what many people are facing, which is remote work at this point. Absolutely. And even before remote work, uh, research from Dr. Christine Parath at Georgetown University has shown that over the last decade, workplaces have doubled in incivility. In fact, 98% of workers will say that they've experienced civility in some form every week. And so pre what's happened in 2020 and the increasing sudden shift to remote work for many, many people, increasing our use of technology and being available so much all the time, the increase of diversity, not just gender or race, but age and styles of working, neurodiversity, all these different elements that have been coming in have meant that what feels okay for me might not feel in any way okay for you. I feel safe with it, but you don't. And so understanding that we're back to complexity has been an increasing challenge. And then I think add on all the challenges of 2020 and the COVID pandemic to that mix as well. And yeah, it got even harder than it was. One of the great capabilities of our brains, but one of the great dangers of them is we're pretty good at thinking we can mind read other people's intentions and their feelings and their actions. And again, to keep us safe, our brain tends to leap ahead and mind read each other. And what that mind reading so often does is wind us up in those interpersonal knots again, right? Because I've assumed something without actually checking in with you. And again, there's some wonderful research that shows most of us are far more confident in our mind reading abilities than we have any right to be. (laughs) And so the only antidote for that mind reading, the only antidote for that incivility is again, back to being more curious and generous with each other. And so instead of assuming things, instead of mind reading, checking in and going, hey, I just want to check in. What did you mean by that? Or, hey, I wasn't sure what your intent was behind that action. Can you just walk me through it so that we're on the same page? All of this reinforcing the smart decision you made in looking at positive psychology and change and transformation being dependent on people in the organization and not just systems and processes. Now, I know, Michelle, you've also done a lot of great work on wellness in the workplace and would love to get some of your thoughts and insights with respect to, you already mentioned, some aspects of how we as leaders can reflect on our own wellness and how we can reflect more on the wellness of our teams as we lead them forward. 
Yeah, I think we've been doing research all over the world and particularly in America over the last few years, looking at wellness and well-being in workplaces. And probably the biggest thing I'd say is just because we're perfectly imperfect and change is mess and magic, it probably shouldn't surprise us to know that when it comes to wellness and our well-being, we both thrive and we struggle. And both of those things are actually okay. I think often when we talk about wellness and well-being, we think it's all got to be thriving, everything's going to be well all of the time. Here we go. And our research does not support that at all. And I don't think most people's lived experience supports that either, right? Our wellness and well-being ebbs and flows based on what's happening in the world around us and based on the choices that we're making. And that is completely normal and completely healthy. If you came to me and said, hey, I've been well for the last 10 years, I'd be like, are you disconnected from reality? Like what's going on over there? And so what we've seen in this research that actually workers can be high in thriving, high in well-being levels, but also high in struggle. And what happens in terms of outcomes like well-being, engagement, performance, job satisfaction is statistically, there's very little difference if I'm high in both versus somebody who's high in thriving, but low in struggle. And often we think, you know, the idea surely of wellness and well-being, I'll be high in thriving and I'll be low in struggle. But the data doesn't support that. I can be high in thriving, have the knowledge, the tools, the support I need to be well, and be high in struggle and be doing completely okay. In fact, better than okay, I can actually be doing pretty well. And so what we find is that normalizing that wellness and well-being comprises both thriving and struggle and both are okay, particularly when we have the knowledge and the tools and support to both support our thriving and to navigate the struggle then really, you know, you will have better outcomes than if you're low in struggle, (laughs) but you're still not really thriving, or you're high in struggle, of course, and you're still not really thriving. Neither of those are the ideals, but actually struggle in and of itself is not the issue. So this has been a big one. The other one then is just when it comes to then caring for our well-being through those ebbs and flows that we all experience, What we really want to be focusing on building is not perfect wellness or well-being scores, but we want to be building our ability, our motivation, and we're back to good old psychological safety, our sense of being able to talk about what's working well, where am I struggling, what am I learning around my well-being, so that over time we're becoming increasingly intelligent and able to navigate different contexts and situations as we find ourselves in them. That's fabulous, Michelle. And also, I know you mentioned the struggle and the fact that you're also a big advocate of anti-fragility. I love Nassim Taleb's work on that and thinking. So that struggle can lead to anti-fragility. And would love to get your thoughts and perspectives on how leaders can view the struggle as they lead over the coming year and years. With the ongoing crisis, not just the pandemic, the pace of change has picked up, disruption has picked up, how they can truly embrace anti-fragility with that struggle. You know, the big thing here is just to understand that struggle is an invitation always to learning and growth for us. Now, it might not be the invitation we want. <laughs> I want to think of it as the unexpected gift. It's the gift I didn't ask for, but it's the gift I'm being given in this moment. So I like to imagine my struggles come with like a big red gift bow on them so that they look at least a little more appealing for me. And remember, this is coming from somebody who started her life hating change and really not wanting any more struggle, feeling I'd had way more than my fair share very early in life. And so struggle is an invitation to learning and growth. And whether that's our individual 
invitation, whether it's our team invitation, our workplace invitation, our system invitation, as we're seeing so much across America right now, it is an invitation. Now, you can send it back, return to sender, don't want this right now, but it will find its way back to you. The lesson will still be there waiting for another moment when you're ready. Now, unfortunately, often I find when we're struggling, we say put a pin in it, right? We like to project it onto other people, blame other people, say it's theirs to take care of. We like to ignore it, close our eyes, maybe it'll go away, or numb it. There's a reason why we binge Netflix all weekend is to escape from the struggle, right? And so the more, though, that we can actually learn to spot the signals that we're struggling, again, most of us are not very well attuned to that, be it for ourselves to know that my sleep's going out the window, I'm suddenly eating all the chocolate, you know, I'm not connecting with people as much. What are those signals for ourselves, for our teams, for our workplaces? How do we sit with self-compassion? We're back to that beautiful word again, knowing that I don't need my inner critic beating me up. I don't need judgment. I need curiosity and I need to remember I'm perfectly imperfect. I need my growth mindset right now. And then how do I take steps towards thriving? And they might be tiny to start with and that's okay. And I don't need to rush it. I might need to sit with my self-compassion for hours, days, weeks, months. It's okay. You know when you're ready to move. But then when I step forward, even a tiny step forward counts. And if I can take bigger steps or those tiny steps lead to more ones, fantastic. But the only way to navigate struggle is to move through struggle. And that's where the learning and the growth comes, right, in those moments. So when we can see struggle as a path for development, a path towards mastery of different things, I can't say, honestly, I'm right, here's some more good struggle, let me add it yet. (laughs) But I'm like, okay, the, the gift has arrived. It's the invitation I didn't want. What is my invitation here for learning and growth? And how might I move through this, not white knuckling it the whole way or resisting it to the point where it's going to create suffering for myself and others. Beautiful way to capture struggle and the opportunities that come from it, whether we like it or not, the struggle comes our way. Obviously, I could carry on the conversation for hours with you, Michelle, that said, uh, we can carry on the conversation for hours. I highly recommend your fabulous podcast, Making Positive Psychology Work. That's a way of spending hours and hours with you, not binging Netflix, binging the podcast. (laughs) How else can our audience find out more about you and your work? Yeah. So if you're curious about your well-being, we have a wonderful free five-minute well-being survey that links into all the evidence-based positive psychology tools, which you can take at PERMA, P-E-R-M-A-H, survey.com, permasurvey.com. You can use it for yourself. You can share it with your teams. It's a great way to just understand a bit more about how to care for your well-being at work. And then michellemcquade.com is our website. Tons and tons of free resources, including podcasts and cheat sheets and ebooks and many other things that you can use in this space. This is fabulous. Well, thank you very much for sharing some of your insights with the Partnering Leadership community, Michelle. It's been such a pleasure to be here with you. And thank you for the gift of the podcast that you put out for leaders as well. We all need a little more help on this front in my experience. (laughs) Thank you, Michelle McQuaid. You've been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.